Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, so today's show is about uh, sucking up and sycophancy, which are both the same things and maybe slightly different conditions of the same thing. Uh, I can tell you that the minute we knew that there was a new book out called Sucking Up, A Brief Consideration of Sycophancy, uh, we knew we wanted to do We hadn't even read the book and we knew we probably wanted to do the show. And then we read the book, which is written by Deborah Parker and Mark Parker. And we discovered it's exactly the kind of thing that we like too in the sense that it, in terms of the examples it draws from, it is... Uh, reliant on both uh, high culture, uh, that which is to say Proust, et cetera, uh, and Greek philosophers, and kind of low to middle culture. I mean, it's got Tolkien, you know. So um, we thought, oh, <laughs> we're all set. Uh, so let me tell you a couple of things before we get going with the Parkers. And let me tell you also that in the final segment, we were sort of thinking about, you know, people who maybe institutionally have to suck up to a certain degree. We started thinking about butlers. And so we are going to talk to a butler and a person who not only has been a butler but trains butlers uh, in the uh, final segment of the show today, um, uh, uh, talking about threading that particular needle. Um, but we're, that's going to be preceded by an overview. Before I get to that, I have to tell you that today, I want to tell you that today is one of the shows that we call Radio for the Deaf, which is to say that we have tried to create a radio medium which can be enjoyed and experienced by the deaf community. Uh, the way we do this is we have two fabulous, and I'm not just sucking up, uh, interpreters uh, here in the studio with me. They will be interpreting the show into American Sign Language. Um, the, the visual version of that will be available to you on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. So go to our show Facebook page and you should see the video uh, of our two interpreters doing this. If you know anybody in the deaf community who basically has no access to radio, uh, please tell them about this. We try to do it every two Thursdays. Uh, anyway, so that that's that. Now, why talk about sycophancy right now? Well, you could argue that we're in a golden age of sycophancy. And I'm going to begin by playing for you a tape that is newly renewed and renewedly, I guess, in the news. This is the famous um, Access Hollywood tape, uh, not part of the Access Hollywood show, but the back and forth between uh, Billy Bush and uh, Donald Trump, who, uh, as you listen to this, remember, at this point, he's a businessman and a little bit of a celebrity, uh, and but he's not a politician or the president of the United States. So you'll probably hear the more famous part uh, of this audio and th then I'm going uh, um, I'm going to contextualize it a little bit more. So here it goes. Whoa. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. Yes, the Donald has scored. <laughs> <laughs> oh my man. Wait, wait, you got to look at me when you get out of your life. That is very you give me the thumbs up. Look at you. You are a piece. You got to put the thumbs up. You got to okay. get the thumbs up. You can't be too happy. Else off first? Yeah, let me. You gotta give me the thumbs up. Uh, you and I will walk there. Oh my God. Maybe it's a different one. Better not be the publicist. No, it's it's her. Yeah, that's her with the gold. I'm gonna use some tic tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the <laughs> 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 Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God
I could do anything. So we know which part of that tape has become um, avowedly, anyway, important in terms of our understanding of who this man is. But uh, now I want to call your attention to Billy Bush in this tape, who is the ultimate lickspittle. As they're driving, this this bus is kind of kind of coming onto the lot, uh, and they see the woman with whom Donald is going to be paired up. Uh, and I'm calling him Donald. Jeez, uh, the Trump is going to be paired up, and you hear Bush go, "The Donald has scored." Um, and what you don't hear here, it happens a little bit later when they get off the bus and they meet this uh, attractive woman in a purple dress. Um, she greets them and meets them. And then Billy Bush goes, how about a hug for the Donald? Uh, so she gives him a hug and a kiss or whatever. And then they're walking along and, and Billy Bush says something to the effect that, you know, I, I can barely even walk next to this man. No woman will ever notice me, that kind of thing. So you're really seeing the toady, the lickspittle, the sycophant in his full flower. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, probably pretty characteristic of the way Donald Trump was treated during his time as a businessman. Now, uh, during his time in office, have people started being a little bit more clear and direct with him? We don't think so. Uh, let's listen uh, to uh, a little bit of audio from the 10-day era of Scaramucci. The president has a very unique uh, communication style. I would argue, people will say that I'm being sycophantic. I'm not. I'm just being objective. He is arguably the most media savvy person in history, but certainly of our times. So now it's time for you to meet uh, Deborah Parker and Mike Parker. Uh, Deborah Parker, professor, professor of Italian uh, at the University of Virginia, uh, co-author uh, with, as I say, Mark, uh, Mike, uh, Mark Parker, who is professor of English at James Madison University. Uh, and this book, once again, is called Sucking Up, A Brief Consideration of Sycophancy. So Deborah Parker, you know, it could be argued listening to this and maybe some other audio that we'll hear as we go along that we are in a golden age of sycophancy. But on the other hand, this whole question has been tackled as early uh, as Plutarch, right? So this is something that people have been thinking about for a long time. Is there anything different uh, about the present moment? Yes, it's become far more public. And at times, the comments that people are making are rather bland. There's no real artfulness in the way they're speaking. The tape you just played of Anthony Scaramucci, he's very blatant about um, t saying how great the president is. And in another interview, he said, I love the president no less than five times. It's become very public before. There, there are three players usually. There's the target, there's the ingratiator, and uh, often there are observers. He's playing to the observer and especially one observer in particular. Right. And, and you know, Plutarch, um, uh, Mark, asks the question, is anything harmed by this? And, and he says, well, first of all, the person who, whose own credentials are being distorted uh, is harmed and probably the person who is uh, adopting this very false self-system uh, as an ingratiator is harmed. But he makes the argument, I think, that the community is harmed too in a much more finely grained way. And I think now we would agree, right? I think so. I think it's pretty clear that, that we're all sort of suffering from that kind of harm as the community becomes a place where we really can't tell what's, what's true and what's false. And it, sometimes we see that people involved in this don't really care about the difference between true and false. Um, the, um, there's so much to say about that, but uh, I just want to continue on for a second. Well, Mark, I, let's just stay with this for a second because 
political sycophancy, sycophancy within the White House is nothing new. Um, at one point, JFK uh, identifies this as a problem. One of the things that may have distorted his judgment uh, about the Bay of Pigs uh, and actually asks his brother Bobby to be kind of the non-sycophant in the room, the person who challenges uh, him when everybody else is nodding their head. You write a lot about Kissinger, who in a very artful way would get his way, uh, much like uh, Disraeli, whom you also write a lot about, yeah. by, by being a very effective and conscious sycophant. Is this different from the thing that you're describing about 2017? I think that's very hard to say whether there's more or less sycophancy in the political realm now and uh, in years past. My guess is that it's much the same. I think there's one essential difference that it's, that it's more public and that expectation now is that people go public with their sycophancy. I think when Kissinger and some of the advisors for JFK were doing their sycophancy, it was often behind closed doors. And it came out later, much to their chagrin, but many, many years later. Now it's supposed to be, you're looking directly at the camera. There was a wonderful clip of Scaramucci one time really looking right at the camera and talking to the Donald through social media. Uh, that really is a change. Well, so Deborah, I think maybe it's a philosophical question and maybe it's more than, than that. But you could be argued that sycophant is a more or less permanent condition. Sucking up is a tool that people uh, pick up and, and, and put down as they need it. Um, most of us at some point over the course of any given week might uh, lavish a little bit of not entirely genuine praise on somebody else because the occasion calls for it. Even Disraeli is very – he knows and, and, and you know, in a very lively way acknowledges to other people that his job simply involves troweling praise onto Queen Victoria. But he seems to see it as a technique rather than an identity. Is that a useful distinction that sucking up is temporary, sycophancy is more permanent? I'm not sure, but there certainly is a distinct a difference between being nice and kind to one's friends or co-workers, say, pointing out, oh, what a nice color you're wearing or, or something like that, and being an inveterate habitual suck-up, someone who is very opportunistic, uh, thinking about strategies that would enhance his or her own position. That is, there's, I think, quite a difference between just normal, everyday kindness and inveterate uh, sucking up. Right. Well, Deborah, also, I think that, um, you know, in a way, we, we have to kind of come up with a, a taxonomy or a morphology a little bit for this, because I do think the more that I read your book, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, it's interesting to think anyway about the direction in which these things flow. So who is it who needs this? You know, before we came officially on the air, I was talking before the news about Eddie Haskell, who uh, was uh, the friend of Wally Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver. You guys may be too young to remember any of this, but uh, he kind of famously would begin his encounters with, uh, with Wally's mom by, that's a lovely dress you're wearing today, Mrs. Cleaver, and that would go on. And it was clear to the audience that Mrs. Cleaver didn't need this and she didn't buy it. She didn't need to be told she had a lovely dress on. Eddie needed to be that person at that moment in order to conceal the rascal that he was. And, and so I think as we look, Deborah, at some of these transactions, they're all a little bit different. Sometimes it's the object of the flattery who needs the flattery. Sometimes it's the flatterer who needs it in order to advance his or her position. And I guess sometimes it's both. Yes, that's very true. It... Hierarchies enable flattery. 
And it depends on who's really at the top, who's the boss, the director, the president, whatever. If this person uh, craves flattery, as, say, Trump does or other leaders, then it's a, then the entire community tends to participate and enable that, um, either agreeing with him or um, enhancing his opinions uh, not calling out, um, not pointing out disagreements, activity like that. So, um, Mark, uh, through the book, you um, talk about a, a series of up suckers, uh, some of whom we are familiar with and others of whom uh, maybe we're not. Uh, you know, Uriah Heep and David Copperfield, we maybe know. Le Grandin, who's in um, Swan's Way, uh, in, in Proust's uh, Remembrances of Things Past. Maybe people don't know as well. Lear's Daughters, uh, Wormtongue in, in Lord of the Rings. Now, all of those people are false people. In other words, Uriah Heep uh, is uh, uh, ultimately a harmful person pretending to be humble. You know, Le Grandin is a snob uh, who under certain circumstances will turn into uh, um, drop his arrogance and turn into a suck up to the to the shock of observers who think they know him. Lear's daughters are in it for themselves. Wormtongue is trying to weaken the king of Rohan for his own nefarious purposes. You know, there are there are other suck ups who are different. I mean, one of the people that we we can't avoid is Smithers, uh, the the sycophant to Mr. Burns and the Simpson, who, like the Tony Hale character in Veep, Gary, is genuinely entranced and enamored with the person he is worshiping. So is that different? Well, there are there is a real difference there, I think. And in part, what people think about sucking up or sycophancy has changed over time. If you look back further in time uh, and in history, there's a sense of real moral opprobrium involved in this, and it's just absolute. And I think you can see that in the the way popular culture has come up with such wonderful names for, for sucking up. Bootlicker, Lickspittle, Toad Eater, Brown Noser, A Kisser, Kiss A, Suck Up. These are terms that sort of suggest a kind of opprobrium, a kind of contempt for this kind of action. I think over time, it's become a little more transactional, and it's become something of an ethics-free zone as people think about it as an activity they can begin and do it for a certain purpose strategically and then step back and be free of in some ways. They're washed clean of it. I don't think it was quite so easy over in the past to sort of walk away from this and simply say it was a transaction that is now over. There's another uh, example of someone who gets away with it, too, and that would be uh, every one of Jane Austen's novels has mm -hmm. a flatterer sycophant. Uh, but in thinking about the, uh, her novels, the one we decided to focus on is Lucy Steele in Sense and Sensibility. This is the novel that um, Ang Lee turned into a beautiful film. And she – the novel has two protagonists, two sisters – and Lucy comes from a different class, not as refined as the two Dashwood sisters. Nevertheless, she worms her way into a friendship with Eleanor Dashwood and into their circle, endlessly flattering the uh, ill-behaved children of one of the women. And at the very end of the novel, Jane Austen has something pretty uh, revealing to say about Lucy. And um, it's that... 
she just says that Lucy represents a most encouraging instance of, of what an earnest and unceasing attention to self-interest, however its progress may be apparently obstructed, will do in securing every advantage of fortune with no other sacrifice than of time and conscience. So that's all you lose in pursuing uh, your self-interest, time and conscience. But when one thinks about it, that's losing a lot. That is losing a lot. Although, Mark, I, I, one of the things that I find myself thinking about um, are people who make up the entourages of famous people, whether they're famous athletes or movie stars or rappers or whatever. And in many cases, the people in those entourages, these coteries, these posses, you know, they, they I think I probably know it best in the world uh, of professional athletes. Many of these people are people with very little else, at least as far as they can imagine, to trade, right? Uh, they are not, they're not as good an athlete as Wilt Chamberlain. So they have attached themselves to his entourage, and they repeat the things that he says with more emphasis. They laugh at his jokes. Um, they make him comfortable. Uh, and, and in a way, ultimately, what they're doing is maybe similar to what Austin's describing. They, they, they have decided that if they trade that part of themselves, they can achieve a degree of comfort for a while. Yeah. Um, one of the things that drew us to this whole consideration of sycophancy was how complicated it was. I mean, if you just sort of set it out in terms of like the taxonomy that you were sort of talking about earlier, it, an, a single act of ingratiation can mean one thing to the actor, to the person who sucks it up, a completely different thing to the target, and still another thing to the observer. So those are three sort of ways of looking at the same act. And that in its also, is also complicated by the fact that sycophants are often unaware of their sycophancy. Um, that really puts this in a kind of a complex place almost immediately because there are so many different possibilities from a single act in terms of interpreting it, in terms of thinking about it, and certainly in terms of justifying itself to justifying it to oneself. I was also thinking about what you were saying about the entourages, and they they have in some cases contributed to the financial downfall of famous figures. M.C. Hammer and Prince both surrounded themselves with masses of people, and they might they one imagines that they attained a kind of reflected glory in being part of these entourages, but in maintaining them, the uh, Prince and M.C. Hammer beggared themselves. Right. And Deborah, I think that's something we see in literature, too. OK, so you've just described a kind of a real life way in which the person who sits on top of that heap, uh, and I don't mean Uriah heap, um, the person who sits <laughs> on top of that, that pile of flatterers can never see clearly, can never be completely well. So with, uh, with the other heap, with Uriah heap, he's a boil that ultimately has to be lanced for the world of David Copperfield to be healthy. Somehow or other, he has to be exposed as the fraud that he is. Uh, and, and, and similarly in Lord of the Rings, you know, the king can't be healthy until the spell of Wormtongue ha has been cast off. For people who don't know this book or movie, Wormtongue is this guy who whispers into the ear of the king of Rohan and, and gradually weakens him. And, and Deborah, I think that's a very implicit symbol s s uh, system there. What, what, what Tolkien is saying is that kind of person will ultimately make you far, far worse and less effective than you would otherwise be. Yeah, in the case of Wormdom, he really has insinuated himself into the um, 
into being a very uh, a close, intimate, a kind of courtier of the king of Rohan, who himself is not a weak ru- ruler. It's just the power of the the flatterer uh, that has overtaken him. And Tolkien seems to think that at least in Middle Earth, it takes nothing less than a wizard to drive out Wormtongue from the kingdom. Um, I'll tell you what we're going to do right now. I, I want to talk about this um, in the next segment, particularly sort of in terms of management. There's a, uh, a student uh, of the psychology of management, uh, Edward Jones, with whom you deal a lot in the in the book. I think we can also circle back a little bit to um, the Trump administration in that way as well. So let's take a little break. Uh, we're talking about sucking up here in the afternoon uh, or whenever you're listening to us, and we will be back after this. Don't leave me now, cause I'm afraid what you've done to me is now the wolf in my bed. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, we've just heard from that great sycophant of billionaires, the leader of the opposition. All the lectures, the lectures he's trying to run, trying to run a politics of envy. When he was a regular dinner guest at Raheem, always there with Dick Pratt, sucking up to Dick Pratt. Did he knock back the crystal? I don't think so. There was never a union leader in Melbourne that tucked his knees under more billionaires' tables than the leader of the opposition. He lapped it up. Oh, yes, he lapped it up. Members on my he right. was such a sycophant, a social climbing sycophant, if ever there was one. There has never been a more sycophantic leader of the Labor Party than this one. And he comes here and poses as a tribune of the people. He, like Harborside Mansions, he's yearning for one. He's yearning to get into Kirribilli House. You know why? Because somebody else pays for it. <laughs> that is Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia. That's their parliament. Um, he's denouncing a Labour leader and using um, you know, all of the key words in the title of uh, Mark and Deborah Parker's book, uh, sucking up a brief consideration of sycophancy. Uh, and they are still with us uh, and there's a lot to talk about. Um, but um, Deborah, I think we need to talk a little bit about how this is understood uh, in the world of business and in the world of management. Uh, because once again, there, there may be a place for a certain kind of self-presentation um, that includes blandishments. I don't know. I don't know what to, how to call it. But maybe you can sort of help us understand this. Uh, and I know you're relying a lot also on, on the management theory uh, and psychology theories of, of Edward Jones. So, so what do we learn when we transfer this whole question into the world of business? Well, there is an enormous transformation, whereas Jones was really looking at the phenomenon and trying to understand it and identifying just how difficult it is often to determine the intent of the ingratiator. The literature in business schools has taken a completely different direction. And rather than using the more derogatory terms like brown noser, um, butt kisser, lick spittle, toad eater. They have coined this wonderful term and it's sanitized what is involved in flattery and it's IM, ingratiation management. And they're recommending how people can 
have to hone their political skills in order to size up their bosses so that they can leverage their ingratiation in order to further their careers. They wonder whether they are teaching students adequately to become good suck-ups. It's a very different world of in terms of taking it very much for granted. Mark might have more to say about this because this was a um, section of the book he um, addressed more than I did. Yeah, Mark, yeah, so go when ahead. We started When we started thinking about this, we really wanted to use literary text for the most part because we were interested in some of the mysterious aspects of this interpersonal transaction. And part of our argument was that literature allows through the empathetic reading response, you can get inside the head of the suck-up or the person who's being sucked up to. But that led us immediately to think about what are psychologists doing with this. And we did run across this wonderful book by Jones, which is thoroughly imbued with a kind of broad humanistic approach. Uh, He despises this. He uh, is interested in it. It just goes without saying throughout his book that this is a bad idea. But he's also very good at sort of making what you call the taxonomy and talking about the method of thinking about this. What was also surprising was to see how this migrated from psychology departments, this kind of research, to departments in business school. And as Deborah was saying, it really changed in its focus. Instead of like, what is it? It was more how to do it well. And the question was just how to maximize it and how to there's one quote that I really um, treasure uh, that I found in reading these business school accounts. How do you leverage the ingratiation influence resource? (laughs) Uh, The idea of leveraging it, something that traditionally was a moral failing, is really a shock. Well, I think this is a slightly different sphere, too. We could certainly argue, along with Plutarch, that people who do this maybe ultimately lead their superiors uh, into folly, you know, and it might be folly that damages the common will, too, uh, if we lead our superior, we flatter our superiors into the point where they can't see that they're making a really terrible and maybe even life and death terrible decision about a product like Tylenol or something. I, I don't know. That wasn't really the fault of the CEO. I don't think, I'm trying to think of a really good example of this. But, you know, obviously the world of business is full of people, full of executives who have failed to come realistically to grips with a problem with their airbags or whatever. And, and if they don't have a clear vision of themselves, Mark, it seems to me, uh, because the, because their, their lackeys have been following this notion of ingratiation, ingratiation management, there maybe is a damage to the rest of us. Yes, that's one of the, the, the central things we really were surprised to see is how clearly set out this was in the past. Plutarch really understands the dangers, and Deborah may speak to this later, but the person who really understands the dangers of this is Dante, who really kind of has a, a real master class in thinking about what sycophancy is, what it's connected to, what other kinds of behaviors it's connected to, and how damaging it is to the larger cultural order. Yeah, I can say a little bit about that. There are nine circles to Dante's Inferno, and flatterers are punished in the eighth circle along with other despicable sins. What really surprises many of my students is that murderers are punished in the seventh circle. And it's very difficult for many for many readers to think of anything worse than murder. But Dante places sins like flattery below um, that of uh, the seventh circle of murderers. And along with flatterers, he has liars, sowers of discord, hypocrites, thieves. He sees these sins as interconnected. And for Dante, 
something like flattery and lying, hypocrisy, these are sins against the community because if you're flattering someone endlessly, it makes frank communication impossible. And the loss of that is a sin against the community. Right. And uh, Dante is probably borrowing just a little bit uh, on Jesus, uh, who also, in his denunciation of lawyers and Pharisees and, and stuff like that, is also, I think, making essentially the same point. Yes. Um, yes. So and I'm sure Dante would be happy to give a nod uh, to Jesus on that one. So I, I think one of the uh, things—so we have somebody from the world of business, Donald Trump, who clearly his business mode has been to insist on this kind of unflinching loyalty that includes an unquestioning loyalty um, and um, that, you know, how you show your loyalty to him does include to a certain degree that kind of flattery that we heard at the beginning of the show. Uh, we were treated to um, – what I found kind of a disturbing and humiliating uh, circus of this uh, early on in his presidency uh, with his cabinet. Let's hear a little bit of that. Thank you, Mr. President, and uh, just the uh, greatest privilege of my life is to serve as, as vice president to a president who's keeping his word to the American people. With your direction, we were able to also focus on the forgotten man and woman who are the folks who are paying those taxes. So I appreciate your support and your direction in uh, pulling that budget together. <clears throat> President, uh, what an incredible honor it is to, to uh, lead the Department of Health and Human Services at this pivotal time under your leadership. Uh, I can't thank you enough for the, the privilege that you've given me and the leadership that you've shown. Rex? Mr. President, thank you for the honor to serve the country. It's a great privilege you've given me. On behalf of the entire senior staff around you, Mr. President, we thank you for the opportunity and the blessing that you've given us to serve your agenda and the American people, and we're continuing to work very hard every day to accomplish those goals. So, Mark, what are we to make of this pageant here? I mean, these are the, some of the highest-ranking members of the, pa- of the cabinet who have been asked in a very public way to engage in ingratiation management, whether they took the course or not. Right. Uh, that was staggering. I mean, I don't think anybody expected that kind of obviousness to this. I think we can assume that things like this went on, maybe not are, are going around the table. But it was, again, it was private. This is public and it's really for the cameras and it's really for that larger sort of uh, spear of the observer. I mean, Trump seems to want this kind of uh, activity and he seems to elicit it, but he also wants it to be seen by everyone. It's not enough just to kiss the ring in private for him. It really has to be done on as many media platforms as possible. And, and Deborah, we are told that in his encounters with James Comey, he asked for a vow of loyalty. Comey offered him honesty. Trump be ever making deals uh, countered with, well, how about honest loyalty? We have Jeff Flake in his resignation speech talking about how a section of his party uh, will stop at nothing less than anything short of complete and unquestioning loyalty. But, you know, this kind of distorts the notion of loyalty because it could be argued that if, if you have loyalty to the, to the king, to the CEO, to the president, one thing you will do is, is tell him when he's, you know, got the pedal to the metal and he's driving the car into a concrete wall. But you can't do that if flattery is the coin of the realm. Yes, you've put it very well. The, we've all seen what happened to Comey and also to Sally Ann Yates, who was the acting um, attorney general. Uh, both of them have been kicked out because they did not; they were not sufficiently loyal to Trump. And with him, it's not just enough to be um, – to. 
one begins with simply confirming uh, his views, but better still if you can turn yourself into some kind of human Photoshop app and enhance everything he says, no, uh, no matter how um, fallacious. So uh, as we're heading towards this uh, segment we're going to do about butlers, uh, Mark, I'll, I'll end this part of the conversation by asking a little bit about uh, how you read uh, Ishiguro's novel, The Remains of the Day, made into the movie with Anthony Hopkins as this butler. Stevens, this guy who – he has an incredible loyalty to his master who's this deeply flawed um, man with fascistic uh, leanings. Um, but he also, I think, maybe has a loyalty to the institution that he represents, the the loyalty of – to, to the idea of being a butler. Is that part of what makes him unable to see his own master clearly? Yeah, that text is very interesting because I'm not sure it's so much about butlers, but it really does show a great deal about sycophancy because there's a couple of key things here. First of all, as a butler, he he really doesn't know, seem to understand what he's doing. Uh, and he hides it from himself. And this goes back to that idea that some sycophants never really see their sycophancy. It goes back to Proust, who talked about what he called the intervening effects of the imagination, that the sycophant creates uh, someone to follow who is better than the person they're following. And this justifies actually what they're doing. Um, that's a, a kind of a master class in sort of the lack of knowledge of self and also in the kind of interesting ability of sycophants to make over the world for themselves. If you think about it, there's an irony here. Sycophants often are changing the nature of the world for the target, lying to them, making them think they're better than they are. The world is different from it is. But they also lie to themselves and uh, are, are in justifying their activities. So there's a kind of double sort of blindness that's being imposed by sycophancy. Right. There's a way in which some sycophants, Stevens, uh, the butler in this book, and, and Smithers in The Simpsons, they're prisoners of their sycophancy. They can't get free of it. Whereas Disraeli, as you show him to us, is sort of the opposite, right? I mean, his mm -hmm. the fact that he has decided, well, when necessary, uh, and given the fact that I'm in this weird artificial institution that involves a queen, you know, mm -hmm. I will be a sycophant. And that will actually kind of set me free in a way, right? Yeah, they're both willing players in this game. It's almost as though it, we can look at the relationship between Disraeli and Queen Victoria as a kind of mask in which he repeatedly refers to her as a fairy, thinking of Spencer's fairy queen, mm -hmm. and she responds in kind. He had said um, famously to the poet Matthew Arnold that everybody loves flattery, and I no, he says, I've been told I'm a flattery. Everyone loves flattery. And with royalty, you have to lay it on with a trowel. And what is what really separates someone like Disraeli from more run-of-the-mill figures like Kissinger and others we've discussed so far on the show is the, his artfulness. He was a great writer as well. He began, in fact, as a novelist. And he draw, he capitalizes on these resources of language in writing Queen Victoria, these wonderful notes uh, transforming her, her into this fairy or some other mythical figure. And there's something really admirable more in looking at his artfulness. And they, they did one another favors as well. And he did get many of the things he wanted as prime minister, but it's on a very different level than others we've discussed. 
We have to stop there. We've been talking to Mark, Mark Parker, a uh, professor of English at James Madison University, uh, Deborah Parker, a professor of Italian at the University of Virginia. I wish I could talk to you more. I'm heading off to Luca tomorrow night. Uh, but uh, right now, the subject has been the book Sucking Up, A Brief Consideration of Sycophancy. Uh, in the final segment today, we will be talking to a butler. I also want to remind you that we're doing Radio for the Deaf with our wonderful interpreters. I'm not just sucking up to them. Uh, you can find them on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page where they're offering this show interpreted in American Sign Language. All right, let's take that break. And when we come back, you'll meet a butler. And frankly, Mike's right about him being right. Not only that, but you remember my great idea that my cat last week... I don't know about anybody else, but I think Colin is doing such a fantastic job here. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is not just a good fish, she's a great fish. Our intern is Sarah Bly. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eddie Haskell. And now, back to Colin. We're speaking to Stephen Ferry, chairman of the International Institute of Modern Butlers, the author of three textbooks, including the British Butler's Bible. Welcome to this conversation, sir. Thank you, Mr. McEnroe. So let's begin with the question, why, why do people want butlers as opposed to, I mean, there are, there are ways to get certain tasks accomplished uh, using different kinds of personnel. What's the special need that a butler is, is meeting? He's really managing the house. He's CEO Home Inc. Um, someone who's really wealthy probably has someone managing his one or more companies. So why not also his one or more residences? And, and so uh, one of the other notions that we have uh, of a butler is that, that a butler has to create, I guess, almost kind of a persona for dealing with his duties. For me, anyway, the thing that's kind of locked in my mind is Jeeves and B- Bertie Wooster, where Jeeves obviously uh, is smarter than Bertie, but he can't really ever let Bertie know that, that there's a, a way in which you have to be superb at your job without seeming to be better than the person who's employing you. I'm assuming some of that is locked in the past and not necessarily germane to today's butler. Exactly, because not all uh, employers are as, uh, frankly, daffy uh, as uh, Worcester is Mm -hmm. uh, today. Um, In fact, it goes back a long time. If you talk about history, the Greek plays used to have a, a figure who was like a butler, but he was very much trying to find ways of benefiting from the relationship, often in a dishonest way. Um, obviously, we try not to carry that through today because that's not appreciated by people. But um, if, you, if you look at the function of the butler, he is close to the employer. He could take advantage of him, such as oh, Blackadder mm. with Ed, Prince Edward. I don't know if you've seen that series. Um, he constantly takes advantage of his employer. But generally speaking, employers are not stupid and they appreciate good service and caring service. Another notion that we have, I think, from that idea, our, our, our cultural image of the butler is one of almost self-sacrifice. And even if you think of Downton Abbey, Carson is um, in a way maybe locked in an older idea of what his job is uh, compared to some of the younger staff who, who tend to s- see the world in terms of, of at least some obligations to them, uh, things that maybe they could reasonably expect for themselves. And Carson spends a lot of 
of time kind of telling them what their place is. And there's a sense that he is prepared anyway to sacrifice a tremendous amount of himself uh, for his uh, employer. We see that also, I think, in Remains of the Day, which I know that you've written about. In fact, uh, are we going to play a clip here from Remains of the Day? Why don't we just play that clip right now? Stevens. Yes, We have some refugee girls on the staff at the moment, I believe. We do, my lord. Two housemates, Elsa and Irma. You'll have to let them go, I'm afraid. Let them go, my lord. It's regrettable, Stevens, but we we have no choice. You've got to see the whole thing in context. I have the well-being of my guests to consider. My lord, may I say, they work extremely well. They're intelligent, polite, and very clean. I'm sorry, Stevens, but I've looked into this matter very carefully. There are larger issues at stake. I'm sorry, but there it is. They're Jews. Yes, my lord. Now, uh, that's, of course, Anthony Hopkins uh, in the role of Stevens. In Ishiguro's novel, my recollection is that it's almost like peeling off layers of onion skin, you know, that, that Stevens, because of his almost blind loyalty to his employer, can't even really see for a long time and therefore cannot really tell us, the readers, uh, how morally flawed uh, his employer is. But once again, I, I feel like that's, that's a novelist's and then a filmmaker's notion of what a butler is. Do you recognize any of the butler's job in that depiction? Um, absolutely. Um, it was actually quite amazing that Steve would have queried his, his employer uh, three times. Mm-hmm. Normally he would just say, certainly, sir, at the first request. But obviously he does have an issue with this, and it's quite a very touching piece, that. Um, but you're, you are expected to uh, do what your boss wants. Um, but... If you really have a, a serious issue with it, then you don't have to go along with it, and you could even resign. No one today is really forced to stay in their position, uh, but you, and you do have to stay loyal to yourself as well as to your employer. If you start compromising your own moral code, uh, then it's a very slippery slope, and we can see where that ended up. Stevens by the end of the novel or at the end of the movie. I've seen that movie about a hundred times. I think it's the best one ever made. Um, we can see that he recognizes that he might have made a mistake, possibly. In, in being so blindly loyal to his employer. But blind, loyal, blind loyalty isn't part of the job requirement, but loyalty is. Intelligent loyalty, perhaps, today. And, and so today, I want you to give us also a sense of what a butler does today, what a day in the life of a butler is. I think now, you know, those of us who give any thought to this at all think that instead of addressing a butler, people are addressing Siri uh, or, or <laughs> various technological equivalents and, and, and setting up technology and electronics to anticipate our needs. Uh, but I'm assuming that the butler still has a certain human touch. Yes, and the human touch is invaluable because you have the the element of judgment and nuance, which is very hard to program into a computer. And even when you do program it in, it's not really from the heart, is it? It's from the software. And there's a fundamental difference, which for people who are alive does make a difference. To answer your question, though, Mm -hmm. a butler has a wide range of duties, so it really depends what the employer wants. He could be cooking, he could be driving, he could be looking after the house. Uh, he could even do the housekeeping if there's nobody else and you're just looking after a single person with not much property. 
But if you are looking at the traditional butler who's looking after the entire estate and he has lots of staff that he's managing, which is the usual uh, situation, um, you would get up quite early in order to open the house and to prepare things for breakfast. You get the staff mustered up and briefed and breakfast is served and then you get your instructions, usually from the employer at that time, um, or you coordinate with your, instruct, uh, with your employer as to what has been done and what you plan to do. Uh, and then you go about and do it. And that includes managing uh, vendors, it includes managing the staff. It could be there's some uh, big party going on that day or in a few days' time that has to be prepared for. You're basically, you're multitasking, but not necessarily at the same time. That's not very efficient. With the idea that the employer is able to focus, employer and family, on what they'd rather do, and you look after all the dross in running the household. And you keep doing that all day. You'd probably end up serving dinner and clearing up after it. Uh, and then closing the house down, and then trying to get a few winks. <laughs> um, I know the. I know you like that line that uh, Helen Mirren has in Gosford Park. Remind the audience of what she says: the the greatest uh, quality of a butler is. Yes, yeah, she asks another visiting uh, staff member, not a guest. What do you think the greatest gift is that a servant has? It's a servant, we could substitute staff member for today. Mm-hmm. And the lady doesn't know, and she says, "Well." It's the gift of anticipation. I know when they're hungry and the food is ready. I know when they're tired and the bed is made. Sometimes I know it before they know it themselves. And I think that's just such a beautiful line. It really does hit home. What is the the main thing that you're doing as a butler? You're bringing a smile to the, the employer's face or the guest's face. And that's what brings a smile to your face ultimately. It's not the paycheck. It's not the bonuses. It's not the astronomic salary sometimes. It's really bringing pleasure to somebody else. Is the job, to a certain degree, a performance? Is the job, to a certain degree, the acting out of a very specific persona that might diverge somewhat from one's own personality? Um, you could say that. If the, if the employer insists that you dress up in pink tails and uh, stand stiffly like the old-style butler at the front door and so forth, yes, you are fulfilling a role. Uh, but where an employer is more serious about having somebody not just as a symbol but as a, a functioning member of the team, um, then absolutely you're not playing a role. But you do you do have your boundaries, you have your rules and your regulations, but the role is just you doing your job. And it should come from the heart and it should be you uh, not premeditating what to do, but just naturally doing it. So I, I wouldn't say that we want to um, program everybody into being robots. Um, and that, that's the wrong way to use a butler. Some people obviously do use them uh, as such. Uh, the the pink uh, the pink tails is something that actually existed in reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, once again, the, the, our cultural depictions of butlers often show them as yes, having great allegiance to uh, th- their employers, but also having great uh, great uh, allegiance to the certain traditions and the way things are done right. And sometimes, subtly, if possible, instructing the employer about that. That's not the way one does things. Uh, pink tails in this situation would not really be appropriate. Uh, the notion that the butler sometimes might have to tell the employer that ah. his ideas may not really conform very well to manners or tradition or even the employer's best interests socially. Um, right. Well, you really should have answered that question for yourself uh, before taking on the job. You have to find out, is the employer so vacuous uh, and <laughs> <laughs> that they would insist on that and then not listen to reason? Now, there, there's a very, obviously, it's one of the skills of the butler is to be able to handle 
communications or, and tricky situations smoothly without embarrassing or upsetting another person. So it is something you could bring up. But if you find yourself stymied by an employer who has a very fixed idea about what a butler should do, and it's not really utilizing you properly, you don't use Rolls Royces to uh, shovel to a transport manure. Mm-hmm. So same thing is you don't use a butler in order to um, do things which anybody could do uh, and not use your skills. So at that point, you should really exit uh, if, you, if, if you find there's too much of this uh, nonsense going on. But by the same token, if a boss wants you to wear pink tails, um, there's no reason why you shouldn't, as long as he's not making a mockery of you of the position. Right. Um, I'm told that there is greater demand for butlers these days, not less demand for butlers. To what do you attribute that? Well, I have to lay it squarely at the hands of the dot-com bubbles and all these other creations of instant wealth over the decades. Before that, butlers had almost disappeared because there wasn't much wealth. Those people who were traditionally wealthy didn't actually have much money left after the First World War and the Second World War. And so butlers were a dwindling or dying species until uh, great wealth started to occur around the world. The next thing you have once you've got a Rolls-Royce or a Bentley or whatever or a Ferrari is, well, let's get a butler. After that, what has really expanded is Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. which has really popularized the concept of butler. There, what you see is a stereotype. The actor himself doesn't like butlers and said he was never employ one. <laughs> but he does a pretty good job of being a stereotypical butler. Um, there's not much nuance there, but it gives you a very good idea uh, of qualities that people admire and respect and would like to have in their in their household. So that's been very good for the profession. Well, I know that uh, given your profession, you're A, a very busy person, and B, uh, keeping your eye on the clock. And uh, we did promise you you'd be done by now. So Stephen Ferry, a chairman and international uh, of the International Institute of Modern Butlers, the author of three textbooks, including the British Butler's Bible, uh, has also worked as a butler in the United States. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your expertise with us. And thank you for your interest. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Body in a cake, no private eye was gonna chase.